subject that we are addressing. We know that suicide is a hugely serious concern for New Zealand and its many communities. Every year, we know around 500 New Zealanders die by suicide, with many more attempting suicide. We know about the tragic impact on the lives of many others, families, whānau, friends and workmates, communities and our wider society. Our Chief Coroner, Judge Deborah Marshall, said last year suicide continues to be a significant health and social problem in New Zealand. And mental health advocate Mike King has described suicide as our national shame. It would be my guess that many of us here tonight have a story about suicide. I know I do. Perhaps you know someone who is struggling and is having thoughts about suicide. Perhaps you know someone who has died by suicide and you have been left behind, struggling to navigate the rest of your life with this loss. Maybe you're here tonight because you yourself are struggling with your own life and heard about this event and thought you'd come along. Whatever your story is tonight, we want to ensure you are in the presence of people who are here for you during any part of this evening, should you need someone to talk to. It's okay to struggle, but it's not okay to struggle alone. And if you would appreciate connecting with someone in our team who you met here tonight, that would be our absolute pleasure. Increased media attention in recent years means we have a great deal more information about this topic, but sadly, our struggle with it continues to be reflected in our statistics for suicide. The number of people who have taken their own lives in New Zealand currently is the highest since records began, with 668 people dying by suicide in the past year. Tonight, we have quite deliberately titled our evening From Suicidal to Hopeful. While we continue to grapple with our own experiences of suicide, we are determined to light a candle here tonight and be a part of the answer to this problem. We are privileged to have some very special guests who are here not so much to share information, but rather to share their story and knowledge of this topic so we can be empowered in our own journey. Having overcome childhood abuse and multiple suicide attempts, Jazz Thornton has now dedicated her life to speaking hope and creating change in the area of mental health through an organization she has co-founded called Voices of Hope. You may have heard about it. Anyone here who has? Nice. Her unique experience and practical message has gained worldwide recognition, being shared through media, international speaking engagements, and now through a new feature documentary film. In 2017, Jazz was named New Zealand's youngest director 
to win the annual Dock Edge Pitching Contest and is now directing her series, The Silence Project. Well, you finished. It's called Jessica's Tree Now and it's done. Thank you. This aims to shed, the, shed light to the stories behind our suicidal statistics while changing the way we have conversations about it. Last year in the school I work in, we were devastated by the loss of a year 13 student to suicide. In the wake of this tragedy, I was given Jazz's contact details. Consequently, Jazz was a guest to our school and spoke with our senior college students. Her story was captivating, positively memorable, and an essential part of our response to that heartbreaking time for our school community. We are delighted at Mental Health Matters to have our first international speaker here tonight. Can we please put our hands together and give Jazz a warm welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for having me, and thank you guys so much for coming out tonight on this absolutely freezing day uh, in Auckland. I've just got back. I've been down in Hamilton for the day, um, speaking with our police uh, force down there and in a high school, which was really great, but I'm excited to be with you tonight and to be able to share with you um, a little bit of my story, but I think more importantly, the, the practical things that I did to be able to get through. Um, so like Richard said, I'm the co-founder of an organization called Voices of Hope. Uh, we basically create online video content and campaigns around mental health and suicide. Uh, we get to travel the world, speaking at high schools and conferences. Uh, I, I actually go to Sydney on Sunday. We've got a big schools tour going on. And the very first video um, that we did was actually a video called Dear Suicidal Me. Uh, it was a video that I had come up with, and basically I got four people to, uh, who had tried to take their lives. They uh, read out their, their suicide notes. And then I got everyone to write a letter called Dear Suicidal Me, which was written uh, to their past suicidal selves. So it was things like, um, Dear Suicidal Me, I know that right now it feels like you can't do it, but what you don't know is that you're about to become an award-winning actor. Uh, you're about to travel the world. You're gonna know what it is to be loved. And, and we put that video out at the beginning of 2017 as we launched Voices of Hope. Uh, and what happened next, we could have never expected. Uh, the video went up and... It was over overnight, it went over to a million views and then two million views and then five and then 20 and now it sits at over 80 million views worldwide and, and that was the thing that launched our entire career with Voices of Hope. Uh, but you see, the cool thing about that video uh, and the concept for that video is that it actually came from a letter that I wrote myself. It came from a letter that I wrote when I was in the, in the psych ward down in Tefidu uh, in Auckland City where I had tried to take my life uh, for the final time. And I say final time because I had tried many, many, many times throughout my life. You see, uh, when I was three years old, my life took a massive turn. There was a man in my house um, that, that started sexually abusing me. Now, I didn't know. I didn't know as a three-year-old what was going on. I didn't know the impact that that would have. But as I grew up and I went into my later childhood years and my teenage years, I discovered that the impact of that was massive. When I was three years old, I also stood and watched as my biological father left and he never came back. And I, I never saw him again. And so as I grew up, I didn't know 
what was going on. I, I had developed these beliefs of being abandoned. I developed beliefs that I was unlovable, that I didn't deserve to be here. And, and then when I was about seven, I remember um, being in school and I went out into the playground and, uh, at interval and, and there was a bunch of kids kind of all out there and I went across the monkey bars and, and there was a whole bunch of kids that started laughing. And I didn't know what was going on and I, and I turned around uh, and one of them piped up and said, no one's gonna touch those now because no one wants to catch your disease. Now what you have to understand is that while I'm standing here now as a 24-year-old, that may not mean anything, but to a seven-year-old, that was everything. To a seven-year-old, that confirmed beliefs that I'm unlovable, it confirmed beliefs that I don't belong, it confirmed beliefs that I'm unwanted. And again, at seven, year, seven years old, my life took another turn. So that when I was 12, I made a decision that no 12-year-old should ever make. I, I made the decision to try and walk out of my own life. Now, I don't know. I don't know if as a 12-year-old I knew that if I did this that I would never wake up again, but to be honest, I really don't think that I cared. I just wanted the pain to end. I didn't wanna keep living in the cycle that I was going in and the pain that was going on in my house and in school. I would walk into school and I would be getting bullied in the yard and bullied online, and the kids didn't know. The kids at school didn't know that as I was walking into school and getting bullied, I was also walking into home and getting abused. They had no idea. And so fast forward a couple of years when I was 16, um, I remember looking at, at my school and we had already lost multiple people to suicide. Uh, by the time I was 16, I had lost eight friends. There was a pact that was going on and so I knew very well what this was. And I decided that if I was gonna do anything with my life, then I needed to get out of the hometown that I was in. I, I, I grew up uh, in a very small town in the South Island called Timaru. And so I was 16, I was working uh, at a fish and chip shop at the time, which is ironic because I'm allergic to seafood. Uh, it was lots of fun. <laughs> no, but I was working at this fish and chip shop and literally I would go in in the morning, I would set up, I would go to school from nine to three, I would go to school, I would go straight to the fish and chip shop, I would work until 10. I did this Monday through to Friday, Saturday, I would work there all day, Sunday I would go to church. And so as a 16-year-old, I saved up the money that I was making from this fish and chip shop and, and I booked a, a one-way flight up to Auckland. I didn't know anyone up here. I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought I was real old at the time. If you've got 16-year-olds, they know. <laughs> they are not. I was shocked when I got up here and things like water and power weren't free. I was like, what is this? This is a sham. Um, <laughs> and I moved up here and, um, and I remember thinking, okay, now everything's gonna be perfect. My life is gonna be great. All my situations are back in Timaru. This is gonna be great. Um, but what I didn't realize is that wherever I was, I was. The problem wasn't my situations. At this point, it was my mind. And so as I got to Auckland, I had completely isolated myself. I didn't know anyone up here. I had enrolled myself in high school and uh, for the next few years, it was suicide attempt after suicide attempt after suicide attempt after suicide attempt. I was put in women's refuges. The police put me in hotels. Literally, my life looked like it was never gonna change. There was one night where um, I had decided that oh, I couldn't do it anymore. I, I, this time I was certain. I was certain that this is what was going to happen. And, and so I went out and I began the process of trying to take my life. And, and as I did, I remember seeing flashlights on the other side of the field. And I was like, oh, flip, like I need to do this now. And, um, and then I felt these hands on my back. And, and these hands pushed me up and, and they got me down. Uh, and those hands were the, a woman called Constable Mika Campbell. 
Some of you may have read a, a letter that I wrote a while ago that ended up going viral um, called Dear the Police Officer That Saved My Life. Uh, and Constable Mika Campbell, she had, she'd pinned me up and she'd taken me down and I remember kicking and screaming and I don't, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I, I just want to go through with it. I don't want to be here. And she pulled me into the back of the police car and I remember her putting her arms around me and I just sat there bawling my eyes out. And, and it was probably like 20 minutes later, I, we were waiting for the ambulance and I looked up at her and, and I saw that she was crying as well. And I was like, I, I don't get it. Why are you crying? Why do you care? Like, why, why do you care about this person that you literally just met? This is just your job, I don't understand. We went to the hospital and, and she stayed with me the entire time her shift ended, she was still there. And then eventually when she had to leave, she put her work number into my phone and was like, Jazz, you need to text me tomorrow and tell me that you're okay. And when you make it to your 21st birthday, I'm gonna come and we're gonna celebrate the fact that you're still alive. I, I'd forgotten about that promise that she made me, but she didn't. And on my 21st birthday, Constable Mika Campbell turned up at my door to celebrate the fact that I was still alive and fighting. And you see, the, the cool thing was is that, that that one moment for me, that one person that chose to believe in me, sparked something in me that went, okay, maybe, maybe I can get through it. Maybe I'm not worthless. And, and then I remember uh, I, was, I was in the psych ward for about two months, and whilst I was in there, I had a conversation that quite literally changed everything. It's a conversation that I now get to share all over the world. It's the fundamentals of everything that I do. Uh, and it was after my very final suicide attempt, I was sitting there bawling my eyes out. Uh, and my mentor, some of you may know her, um, Pastor Esther Greenwood, she came in to the psych ward and she was like, Jazz, why are you crying? And I turned to her and I was like, oh, I'm just so tired of fighting. And she looked at me and goes, Jazz, what do you think the definition of fighting is? Because I don't think that you're fighting. I think you're only surviving. And it's only when you learn how to fight that the change that you're longing to see is gonna happen. And I remember taking that and going, okay, if I've actually just been surviving this whole time and, and fighting might actually change something, then I've gotta learn how to do that. And so from within the walls of the mental health ward, I did what any self-respecting researcher would do and I Googled uh, the definitions of surviving and fighting. And the definition of surviving is to continue to live or exist in hardship, manage to keep going in difficult circumstances. And I was like, yeah, cool. Um, that may have been me for the last nine years of my life. Because <laughs> you see, when I look at the definition of fighting, it said to engage in a battle or war, fight to overcome and destroy an adversary. So I looked at this definition and I was like, okay, I definitely have been doing that. How do I start? What does fighting look like? And, and what the very first thing that caught my eye about this definition was the word engage, to engage in a battle or war. And when I looked at my situation, what I began to realize was that I wasn't fighting my suicidal tendencies, I was fighting the beliefs that put me there. The beliefs that would say, Jazz, you're unlovable. Jazz, you're a burden. Jazz, you don't deserve to be here. And so what I did to fight was that I wrote those down on a piece of paper, I drew a line, and on the other side, I wrote down every single thing that people said or did that contradicted those beliefs. So that every time my mind would say, Jazz, you're unlovable. Jazz, you don't deserve to be here. Jazz, you're a burden. I would pull out this list, and I would have rock-hard evidence in front of me that my internal reality didn't match the external truth. It meant that every time that I was in this heightened emotion of, I can't do this anymore, I don't deserve to be here, I would be able to bring 
bring this out and be grounded back to the reality of, okay, maybe people care. Maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I can fight through this. And that was something that I had to do. It was decision after decision after decision to write those things down. And slowly but surely, the thought pattern of maybe these people care started to change. Uh, the next thing that I had to do to fight was that I had to start engaging in therapy. Now, it's one thing to turn up to a psychologist's office and just sit there and go, yeah, you, you talk, I'm not going to say anything. Because that was me for nine years. I walked in with the perception that this, this illness was who I was, therefore it will never change. This is my identity, so it, it's going to stay like this. But it was only when I decided to go in with the perception that maybe, just maybe, this was only something I was struggling with, therefore it could change. If this wasn't my identity, if this wasn't who I was, then maybe, maybe I could get through it. And so I went into every single therapy session, both in the psych ward and when I got out with the perception, okay, okay, maybe if I go in, maybe they haven't studied all this time and don't know what they're talking about. I think they probably do. I think that they know what they're doing. And so if I go in and I actually activate everything that they're saying, then, then maybe things might change. And they did. Oh, they did. Another thing that I did um, is that I, I wrote that letter, Dear Suicidal Me. Uh, at this point, it was to my future suicidal self. I knew my pattern. I knew that, again, I would end up in this place of not wanting to be here anymore. And so when I had a glimmer of hope when I was sitting in that ward, I wrote that letter. And it went, so actually, I think it might be in, let me see if it's in here. I don't remember if it is. If you haven't got one of these, by the way, these are um, resources that I just brought in from Voices of Hope that we got done, um, which is all about how to fight, which I think is really cool. Um, oh, yeah, it is. This is what I wrote when I was in the psych ward. Dear suicidal me, if you're reading this and I'm guessing things aren't going too well for you, I know that it probably seems impossible that you've gone around in another circle and it would be better with you gone. You think that you're a burden to everyone around you and that no one could possibly love you, but you are wrong. There are people who love you. You know what you need to do to bring yourself back up from this space. Put on inspirational music, not sad music like you always do. You know, it, make, you know, it makes you feel worse that you still choose to do it. Text Esther, Wayne, or Libby, remember, you're not alone, and people care. So please get over your pride and fear and reach out. They would rather have you messy and alive than not here at all. You are so close to being free of all of this. Don't give up now. Remember who and what you are fighting for. People do care about you and you have a future. It's not about battling your past, but fighting for your future. Start fighting right now. Take those steps. You got this. Jazz. So that letter uh, is what inspired our very first video that now sits at over 80 million views. That letter that was simply written to the girl who was trying to stay alive. The girl who was trying to fight. And so every single time that my mind would go, I, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore, I'd pull this letter out. Jazz, this is who you're fighting for. Jazz, this is how you fight. This is how you engage. You know the things that you need to do. And that, those, these practical steps that I began to take that took me from surviving to fighting, it changed everything. It was in every single decision. I remember um, coming out of the psych ward, and at this point, I had been away from church for ages. Uh, I had isolated myself from everyone. I, I thought that I was too broken uh, to ever be, be loved. I was too broken to ever belong. And 
it was about Chris, it was Christmas Eve um, when I got released, and I remember the, the crisis team calling me, and they were like, oh, um, Jazz, we're going to be calling you a lot uh, over the next couple of days because this is when we lose majority of people like you. And I remember getting off the phone and going, I don't want to be a statistic. Uh, no, I don't want that to happen. And so that night, uh, it was about 10 o'clock, uh, we had a Christmas Eve service happening at the church that I used to go to. Um, and so I remember driving down and I stood like on the corner while they started because I didn't want anyone to see me. <laughs> and I like walked in through the back and I sat down and this one girl who um, I had never really talked to before, uh, she, we, we knew each other, we'd been in similar circles. She came and sat next to me and she started talking. And I remember the whole time going, what are you doing? Why are you talking to me? Just leave me alone. I didn't want anyone to see me. I just needed to be here, but I didn't want to talk to anyone. But she just kept talking. And then she was like, oh, Jazz, what are you, what are you doing tomorrow for Christmas? And I was like, oh, nothing. I'm just going to sit at home. It's what I want to do. Um, and long story short, I, I ended up at her house for Christmas. What I didn't realize is that she was worship leading the next morning on Christmas Day service. So I couldn't stand on the corner this time and wait for everyone to go in because we were the first people there. So I had to walk in and I was in the foyer and I was like, oh my gosh, people can't see me. What are they going to think? Oh, this is not good. Um, and then our senior pastor walked in, Pastor Kathy Monk, and I remember her looking at me and just going, oh my gosh, Jazz, it's so good to see you. And I was like... I th what? I thought, that I, I don't think that you liked me. Like, I, my mind would say that you don't, I don't get it. Why are you talking to me? And she literally stood there for like half an hour while everyone was in sound check talking to me, laughing with me. And from that moment, I was like, I'm home. <laughs> it was that one conversation that made me realize, oh, I, I actually can't do this by myself. <laughs> I actually need a community of people. And, and so I, I came back into church, I, I go to Equippers um, in the city, and, and being able to fight amongst a community was so important for me. And recently, I just did a, a massive training with all of our uh, youth leaders and our young adults there, and uh, we were talking about the fact that um, as, as people who might not necessarily be the ones struggling, but are the ones helping other people, sometimes it can feel really hard. Sometimes it can feel like you're just going around in circles, you've got no idea what to do, but what I realized through my own story um, is that consistency is key. My leaders had literally walked with me for nine years before they saw anything. Nine years of suicide attempts, nine years of going in circles, nine years of this constant pattern that was going on. And, and I know at points they were probably like, what are we doing? Like, it doesn't feel like anything's going through. But it was. It just took time to break the beliefs that had developed in me when I was three, when I was seven, when I was 12. Because that was years of stuff that had developed in my brain. And so, of course, it was going to take time. But their consistency and showing me the kind of love that I'd never been shown before, it was able to start breaking those beliefs. And those leaders are, are still very close to me today. Two of them are like my parents now. And um, those, those people played a huge part in the person that I am today, one of them uh, who actually came into the psych ward when I was in there. I remember him sitting there with his wife and he looked at me and think, I'm like an ICU here, so this is, I'm like, this is bad. And he stares at me and he goes, Jazz, I think that one day your story might change the world. And I was like, do you see where we are? <laughs> We're in a psych ward. Don't think so, mate. Um, but as I, as I was kind of going through the process afterwards and got released, I, I would always go back to those words. 
that he had spoken into my future jazz, maybe one day your story will change the world. And now, now he's on the board uh, of Voices of Hope. And I, I get to speak all over the world. I've, I've got to speak at conferences with Hollywood actors in America. We've been over to the UK. I got to have coffee with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. That was cool. He smells really good. <laughs> it was great. But honestly, from the girl once sitting in the sign court, I don't, when Wayne said that, the guy who spoke that to me, I don't, I don't know if he knew. I, I definitely didn't know what was coming. But, but when you're fighting and when you're, when you're struggling with these, with these thoughts, let me tell you this, it's impossible to fight if you don't know what you're fighting for. So when you can't see a future, uh, what, what, are you, what are you fighting for? And so that's why it was so vital for the people around me and for you if you're walking alongside anyone who's struggling, speak into their future. Because at the, at the time when they are going through that, they probably can't see it themselves. Give them something to fight for. And it might be literally for the next day, for the next week, for the next year. For Wayne, he decided to just go straight up there. <laughs> but I'm glad he did, because that worked for me. Because those people, the, uh, the, the constable, Campbell, the woman who spoke to me in the psych ward with the conversation about surviving versus fighting, and Wayne who said, Jazz, maybe your story will one day change the world. Those three people are the reason that I'm standing here today. Their consistency their ability to say, Jazz, we love you despite everything that's going on. Jazz, we'll love you and your brokenness. Jazz, you don't have to live like this anymore. It's going to be okay. Their words, they changed everything. And I, I remember um, it was January 8th, um, a few years ago, and there was a phenomenal man um, preaching in our church. His name is Lucas Connell. And he has a crazy story of um, he was in a drug-induced psychosis and like the TV was talking to him. And, and one day he was sitting in his room um, and he was just crying. He was like, God, you have to move. God, I can't keep living like this. Please, please do something. And in that single moment, he was completely set free. So he's preaching at my church and I'm sitting there and I'm like, that would be cool. I would really like that. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking that in the morning and then all afternoon, I was like, okay, okay, Jazz, you can't keep living like this anymore, Jazz. You, you have to make these decisions. And the thing was, and this might be confusing for people who have never been suicidal, but sometimes freedom is the scariest thing. Because for me, suicidal meant control. There was relationships that were built upon me living in crisis that I was afraid that if I was free that I would lose them. So every other time that I had tried to fight for freedom, I wanted half freedom. I wanted to be free of the suicidal thoughts and I didn't want to feel like this anymore, but I wasn't ready to let go of the control. I wasn't ready to let go of the relationships that were built upon this crisis situation that I was in. And so when I got to that afternoon, I was sitting there and I was like, okay, I'm just going to give everything. I, I don't know what this is going to look like. And from that day uh, to now, I, I have never once gone back into that pattern. I have never once ended up back in the hospital. I have woken up every single day deciding today's the day I fight. Today's the day I fight. Now, not only for my future, but for the future of everyone else, for the future of the generations that I have the honor of speaking to in high schools and intermediate schools around the world. And I, I stand here today as evidence, as proof that no matter what you're going through, oh, it's so possible to get through. That when someone is, is suicidal, that often love alongside fight has the ability to change everything. And it did for me. 
And that's why I get to stand. That's why I get to speak. That's why I get to encourage people every single day of my life. And, you know, if you'd told the girl once sitting in the psych ward that one day she would get to do all of these things, that one day she would write a book with Penguin, that she would have a literal movie being made about her life, which you all should all go see. It's called Girl on the Bridge, comes out at the end of the year, just saying. Um, (laughs) They've been following me for the last two years, and if you had told me that any of this would have been possible, I would have laughed at you. If you'd told Wayne, uh, the constable, Esther, they probably would have laughed at you as well. At that point in time, everything seemed hopeless, but it wasn't. I love the title of this. It's actually the title of my TED Talk. Did you know that? Yeah, he stole my title. Uh, (laughs) From suicidal to hopeful. That's exactly what I was. It's exactly what I am. From a girl who didn't want to live, who every single day would be thinking about how she could end it, to standing up and thinking every single day how I can speak hope into other people. It's so possible. It's so, so possible. Um, and so, I, like I said, we've got our, um, our resources that are up and around. I think they're at the back. But also, um, if there is anything that you're struggling with, we have an incredible service here in New Zealand that I get to work very closely with um, called 1737. Uh, they are, a, you can, it's a number that you can call or text anytime, 24-7, um, and there's trained counselors on the other end. Uh, I know majority of them are really great people. And so if anything has been brought up for you tonight, or uh, if you're someone and you know someone else who's struggling, give that number to them, 1737. You don't have to fight this alone, and hope is so real. I'm proof. Thank you. Thank you, Jazz, for that, um, yeah, just amazing story. And um, I watched Jessica's Tree uh, on, if if you haven't watched it, go and look it up on YouTube or on the Voices of Hope website. It is an amazing um, series of of videos, movies, about um, this young girl called Jessica. Anyway, go and watch it. I won't tell you all about it. (laughs) And 